Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. And thanks for joining me. I am going to be talking today about Proverbs 22.6, whether that is a promise for parents or not. And I'm also going to be talking about Deuteronomy 22 and the laws about rape. So let's go ahead and get started. So I received this question a little while ago and thought it was worth putting on the podcast because it is definitely an issue that you're going to come up with just in Bible interpretation and people are going to want to know how to think about these things. So in Proverbs 22.6, we read from the King James Version, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there are other translations that talk about that. For example, the ESV says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So there, it's pretty much the same thing, except for even is added to that. But the big question is, is this a promise for the parent? You know, if you train up a child the way he will go when he's old, you won't depart from it. You know, this has been used that way in the past, but I think it causes more problems than than anything else because parents get discouraged when their parent when their kids depart from the faith or when uh, or when their kids walk down a dark path for for many years. Even they they think that this is a this is God reneging on his promise, as it were. And that's that's not at all what's happening here, I don't think. And I think there are a couple different ways that we should think about this. And the first thing to keep in mind about Proverbs in general are that Proverbs aren't promises. We are to view Proverbs not as a promise per se, but as a self-evident saying about how life normally works. There are plenty of Proverbs that have exceptions. For example, when you read Proverbs 21.17, it says that the one who loves pleasure will be a poor man. But, I don't know about you, but I know plenty of people who love pleasure that actually are super rich. And so there are exceptions to what Proverbs, but the main point of Proverbs 21.17, which we would embrace gladly is the fact that if you are controlled by pleasure, you end up being a servant of your desires instead of making your desires serve you. And therefore you end up with nothing because even your money goes away to give yourself pleasure. You're, you're in a constant pursuit of that. And the natural outcome of that would be that you no longer have money. So that makes sense that those who love pleasure will be poor people. However, there are exceptions to that. There are very rich people who love pleasure and that's <clears throat> that doesn't invalidate the proverb. It just shows that you know there are plenty of exceptions to the proverbs in general. Now, the other thing that we need to recognize with Proverbs 22:6 in particular is that this is probably a negative warning rather than a positive promise. So what do I mean by that? So when we think of the command, and it is a command here to train up a child in the way that he should go, 
that phrase, the train up a child, that the word for that command is used elsewhere in Deuteronomy 20, verse 5, 1 Kings 8, 63. Uh, in Deuteronomy 20, it's used to kind of dedicate a house. And in 1 Kings 8, 63, it's used to dedicate the temple. Um, so the idea probably, if we're thinking about it, is some kind of initiation, some kind of teaching. The, the translation of train up a child, I don't think that's bad at all. I think that works fine. Um, the idea um, is that you're, you're initializing the child. You're, you're giving him instruction um, at the early stages, uh, as it were. Now, that's not really debated. I don't think there's, there's much more that can be gleaned from that word. But the controversial, controversial part of that phrase is in the way he should go. And there are a lot of translations that use this kind of language. But in Hebrew, the phrase is literally his way doesn't have anything about whether or not he should go that way or not. It's, it's a direct reference to his way. Now, the important question when we're thinking about, well, what is his way, is what kind of way does the youth follow? In, in other words, what is it that the youth pursues? So if we look at what Proverbs has to say about that, we see right away, even in a couple of verses later in Proverbs 22, in verse 15, it says that we see foolishness who's, that is bound up in the heart of the youth, in the child. Same word there. And only discipline can drive it from him, Proverbs 22, 15. The next chapter talks about how parents need, need to pursue discipline with their children because they need it. Same word for children, their youth. Proverbs 23, 23.13. In fact, if we examine the six other uses besides Proverbs 22.6 of the word for youth or child, which is na'ar in Hebrew, if we look at those in Hebrews, in Hebrews, excuse me, if we look at that in Proverbs, we see Proverbs 1.4, 7.7, 20.11, 22.15, 23.13, doesn't speak favorably of the moral disposition or tendencies of youth. In fact, they are challenged, they are spoken of negatively. And so when we keep this in mind, if we're talking about his way, if, if we're training a child in his way, that's probably not a good thing. In fact, it probably refers to a sinful disposition. So if that's the case, then this particular proverb functions as a warning and definitely not a promise, but a warning, a negative example, that if parents train up a child to embrace his own sinful ways, then apart from God's exceptional grace, that child will embrace that lifestyle throughout his life. So I'd probably translate the verse something like this. Train up a child in accordance with his own way, and there we understand it to be sinful, with his own sinful way, and even when he is old, he will not turn from it. So there you get the idea that this isn't, this isn't a positive thing that the child is pursuing. Now, just by a note of application, the main message of the proverb is clear, whether it's positive or negative. It's talking about the importance of parenting, the importance of discipline, the importance of being involved with with the child and also stressing the fact that children do have the tendency to hold to the patterns that they learn in their youth. 
That's why the time of youth is so important, the time of childhood, because you really, uh, I remember what one person told me one time is that you are in the, you're in the time of your life where who you will be, you are now becoming. And that remains true for everybody, just because we're always growing, always changing, always developing, but so much more during the time of youth. And so whether or not we view this as positive or negative, it is stressing the importance of parenting and also just the tendency of children to hold to the patterns of their youth. But whether it's negative or positive, we need to remember that Proverbs are not meant to be promises. And so we need to be careful about throwing throwing out the baby with the bathwater, as it were, when when a child doesn't follow the instruction they got when they're when they were young. And sometimes that's great because they received terrible instruction. And sometimes it's a sad thing because they received great instruction and they turned from that when they got older. So I hope that that's helpful to you. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in his own way. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Okay, second question that I wanted to address today, uh, changing gears here a little bit, is talking about Deuteronomy 22 and the idea that a woman must marry her rapist under Old Testament law. This is definitely a different kind of discussion than what we just talked about, but it's it's important because critics of the Bible often will point to Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29 as evidence that the Bible is out of touch. Uh, it's, it's completely demeaning to women because the Bible commands a woman who is raped to marry her rapist. And... How could a loving God ever do that? Well, I don't think that's the entire story. That's a very simplistic understanding of what's going on here. So I wanted to just briefly talk about what's going on in the Old Testament law here in Deuteronomy 22. Uh, let me read it from the NASB. Uh, verses 28-29 says that if a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered... Then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. All right, so with that in mind, what is this passage talking about? Does this teach that a girl who is raped must marry her rapist? Well, we need to examine the context of this law, and there are a couple things that stand out, two in particular. First, this law is casuistic. So there are two kinds of laws in the Bible as far as the way laws function. And apodictic laws state general principles. For example, the Ten Commandments are the most common example of the apodictic laws they say, you shall not murder or you shall not steal. Well, that's giving a general prohibition. A casuistic law, on the other hand, gives a concrete case, uh, a specific example from which you have to draw principles. So an apodictic law just gives the principle and then you have to apply that to certain cases. But a case law or a casuistic law is one where you draw the principle from the law itself. And so there, uh, in other words, just because a casuistic law is given, we don't, 
you need to be smart to draw the principle from that law. And there, there's a way that we can do that. And in fact, um, soon on this podcast, we'll have to go through the view of law and how we can understand the law. That'll, that'll be important. But as it is right now, um, you can understand this with the general idea of apodictic laws and casuistic. So it's also important to understand, though, that casuistic laws are not intended to be ultimate. You can't think of them as the ultimate standard. Rather, we need to think of them as a template by which the judges and elders and the leaders of Israel evaluate situations. I'll give you an easy example, which I commonly use in my classes and everything like that. Exodus 22.1. Exodus 22.1 describes a situation where a thief steals an ox or a sheep. Now, if that occurs, Exodus 22.1 is very clear that there needs to be restitution. But, obviously, we think about this. Does the law in Exodus 22.1 exempt thieves who steal other animals? I mean, Exodus 22.1 only refers to ox and sheep. So, you know, if, if your neighbor Larry steals, you know, your pet chickens, well, that's fine because those weren't covered by the law. Now, obviously not. The laws aren't meant to be exhaustive in the sense that they cover every single condition. In fact, that's one area where, at least in the United States, we kind of struggle because we're used to our laws just being completely ridiculous and we're trying to cover every single possible situation with the laws. Well, in the ancient Near East and especially in biblical law, that's not the case. They, they didn't trip over themselves trying to come, make a law for every situation. Rather, the laws were meant to be a template or a guide. And certainly not every situation is mentioned in Scripture. However, you can use that template as an interpretive framework to help guide through the situations you do come into play. So with that in mind, first thing we need to understand is this law about rape must be interpreted as that guideline, as that template. So there are there will be other factors involved with that. So second thing we need to understand, apart from just that general context of the law being casuistic, is also just the major context of Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 30. Now all these all these laws in 22, 13 through 30 are one section governing sexual behavior. In fact, it breaks up into four major parts. In verses 13 through 21, you have the section that deals with an accusation that a girl has had sex before marriage. So that's, and that comes about when, when um, the husband accuses her of, hey, she wasn't a virgin when we got married, you know, what happened, right? So that's the first section that deals there. Second section in verse 22 deals with adultery. Third section in verses 23 through 27 deals with two possible scenarios of rape of a betrothed virgin. So in other words, this is the rape of somebody who is betrothed to somebody else. Okay, so what happens in that situation? That's in verses 23 through 27. Now the final section, 28 through 29, which we just read, is the fourth and final. It deals with the rape of an unbetrothed virgin. 
So these aren't separate sections that don't interrelate at all. Rather, they are meant to be viewed as one whole progress. In fact, the third scenario, the third section, gives us some really important context for what's going on here. In this scenario, if we examine this, the man is always put to death for his transgression. So for example, in verses 24 and 25, um, well, I'll start 23 with context. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, verse 24 says, then you shall bring them both out to the gate and, and of that city and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out, of the, out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, that verse requires a little extra comment as well because... The assumption is that the girl, because she was in the middle of the city and, and obviously there's a lot of people around and everything, she is complicit in this. It's not just rape per se. She's complicit in this. Now you say, well, what if, what if he gagged her and she couldn't cry out or anything like that? Well, that's again takes us back to our discussion of casuistic law. There's no way that the judges would put her to death because she didn't cry out because she was gagged or something like that. That is that is completely that that's the American mindset, right? Where we are reading the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law again. And so, you know, the the point, the principle that we draw from this is that the the girl's complicit in this, and so they are both put to death. The person uh, the man, because he violated uh, his neighbor's future wife and the woman because she was involved in that as well. But notice verse 25, if in the field the man finds a girl who is engaged or betrothed and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. So in other words, because in the field it's assumed that it wasn't consensual, it's assumed that she, you know, she's fighting, she's putting it, but nobody can hear her. And so it's assumed that only the man is culpable. But there again, it's important to understand that the man is the one who dies. Like there is, and I think that's really important, is that the rapist in this third scenario dies each time. Like it is, it is a completely inhumane, uh, terrible crime against God's creation to rape somebody. And so the Bible's very clear that the penalty for that ought to be death. So that's really important understanding. In fact, something that's really important to understand is that according to Deuteronomy 22:26, you'll see that rape is described in similar way as murder. And murder, obviously, a man must be put to get put to death because he's taking the life of another. And so here also, we need to understand that rape is a crime tantamount to murder in the sense that you have uh, really an egregious assault against an image bearer of God's creation. And so it's it's a heinous crime in, script, crime in scripture. So in that, from, from that context alone, you're, you're really having trouble if you're saying that the Bible has this anti-woman view where they don't care if you get raped, they just force you to marry. That's not at all what's going on here. But we do need to talk about the fourth scenario as well because what we need to note about this 
section, this fourth section on the sexual transgressions here, is the major detail, which is different from the third, that this girl is not betrothed. In other words, she does not have a husband to take care of her. Now, this is important because in these ancient societies, economic security is largely dependent upon marriage. So a girl who was not a virgin would have a difficult time marrying in the future, thus see the first scenario in these laws because that was the expectation, and that would leave her economically disadvantaged because if you can't get married, there's, I mean, you don't have a bank, you don't have welfare, you don't have all these societal advantages that we have in our Western society. You basically have a agricultural society and if you don't have a means to be taken care of in that society, you are disadvantaged. So this economic factor is actually, I think, really undervalued, but needs to be recognized here in this passage, is that this law is targeting the benefit of the woman. The law mandates that the man be allowed to live, even though he should deserve death, right? We saw that very clearly in the previous passage, but he's allowed to live so that he can marry and economically provide for the girl who would otherwise be deprived of a future. That's really important to understand. Now, that being said, here's a couple things that I think are important to understand. There is no reason to imagine that the girl in question is forced to marry the man. I don't think she's forced at all. In fact, that would go against the entire ethos of the case laws leading up to this one. If we consider the previous law, we understand rape is a serious crime and the man deserves death. However, if the girl's economic future is at stake, as would normally be the case, the man could be allowed to live as long as he provides for the girl through economic benefit. Now, uh, notice also that it says that he cannot divorce her all his days. That's an important emphasis saying like this is to secure her for the rest of for the rest of life. There is no way out of this. This is this is we are providing for her. We're taking care of her. Now, that being said, were there alternatives? I, I would say for sure. I mean, I think the women, the woman involved could choose to live under the care of her of her father or her brother. In fact, we see that uh, a similar circumstance like that in 1 Samuel 13, 20. Um, and we also get a similar picture of that with Ruth because Ruth was previously married, but she ended up getting married again to Boaz. I think that that's also a possibility. The woman could get married to another man if that was... Uh, her choice and if another man agreed to that. However, each of these alternatives is only based on availability. And what I mean by that is that those are options as long as they're options. But what if they're not options? For example, what if she's the eldest of her, of her siblings and she doesn't have brothers to take care of her? Or what if she's the only child? Or what if her father is aged and will die soon? before she does, you know, what are the options at that point? I mean, do you say, I'm gonna stay with my father, but he can barely survive as it is, and as soon as he dies, what happens then? You can imagine that in such a, such a circumstance, 
marriage would really be quite a provision for for her even though it's not it's not the best obviously sin tears things up but but that's the thing about the law is the law isn't the law has a function one of the parts of the law's function is to try to regulate circumstances that are caused by sin not just not just prohibit sin but to also regulate the consequences of sin and to try to bring betterment out of terrible situations and so it's i think it's very very uh applicable to think of this as not demanded of the woman that she must marry her rapist no but that is what is required of the law if she agrees in other words she has that option she can she can turn it down or not so in any case i think it's it's really inaccurate to claim that this law forces a girl to marry her rapist and that the law has a picture of the of the negative value of women and things like that i don't think that's what's going on here at all but i think that a holistic interpretation of the law looking at it in its full section these four sections gives a good context also understanding that this is a casuistic law is really important understanding that the principle behind it is to take care of the woman not to punish her i mean that would go completely against what this law is trying to do trying to the law is really trying to function in a kindness here the law is a extension of god's grace to his people and he's not punishing people for those uh sins that they run into in life especially on behalf of other people so with that in mind i hope you enjoyed this episode looking through proverbs 22 6 and deuteronomy 22 28 and 29 uh, as always, I'd love to hear from you. If you want to shoot me any comments or questions, my email is peter at petergaiman.com. Love to hear from you. And if you want any other information on me, you can look that up on my website, www.petergaiman.com. And if you want more information on Shepherd's Seminary, you can look at shepherds.edu. Until next time, we'll see you later.